Today's program takes us into a debate with a long history and one with a burning relevance today. What is education anyway? Its purpose, its proper method and content, its result. Father O'Malley looks at the history and prospects of the humanistic style of education that grew up in the Christian world of early modern Europe and that spread to North and South America and has always found itself in competition with other educational ideals, especially in the university. Father O'Malley, a member of the Midwest province of the Society of Jesus, is university professor emeritus at Georgetown University. He received his PhD in history here at Harvard and has written widely on the history of Christianity and on the intellectual and cultural world of early modern Europe. His many honors include 21 honorary degrees and eight best book prizes. In 2016, he received the Centennial Medal from Harvard's Graduate School. Among his many books, The First Jesuits, 1993, now in 12 languages, Four Cultures of the West, 2004, and most recently, When Bishops Meet, an essay comparing Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II, 2019, all from Harvard University Press. Father O'Malley, will you unmute and turn your video on? Thank you very much, Deacon Tim, for that introduction. And I have to say that I'm delighted to be here to speak on this topic and uh, to do it uh, for the Harvard uh, uh, Catholic Forum. I lived in Cambridge for 27 years myself, was often at mass at St. Paul's. It was a frequent visitor to the Catholic Center at St. Paul's. And I've had several wonderful encounters with Lumen Christi at the University of Chicago. So it's, I'm delighted to be here and to speak on this topic. The first thing I need to do is define for you the word humanism as I will be using it. Uh, if you look up human, just in an, ordinary, in an ordinary dictionary, if you look up humanism, you will see it defined as interest in human subjects interest in interested in human causality as opposed to divine causality uh, pursuit of uh, the uh, intellectual tradition uh, of uh, uh, human endeavors so that is not what I'll be talking about <laughs> I'll be talking about something similar but uh, uh, and let us say it's related to that, but it's absolutely, it's distinctive. I will be talking about a specific historical phenomenon uh, known since the 19th century as humanism, but had much earlier roots uh, beginning in ancient Greece, classical Greece and classical Rome through the Middle Ages up into the modern period. It uh, sort of crystallized uh, and got organized uh, into a, an institution in the late 15th and especially in the early 16th century. It had many names in the course of its career, 
But the one that appeared most prominently in the 16th century, and the one we know today is the college. The college is very different from its rival institution or its partner institution, the university, an institution that crystallized in the 13th century. What these two institutions have in common is their origin in classical antiquity. Uh, and together, they have dominated formal schooling in the Western world ever since the 16th century. So let's say a word about this. So what am I going to do today? What, what is this all about? As Deacon Tim implied, I'm trying to help us understand today the situation we're in. But to do so, I want to do what I always do, review the past, because the past tells us how we got to be the way we are, how we got to be where we are. So that's what I'll be doing. At the end, I'll try to bring this very much up to date. I will be drawing two strong contrasts between the university and the college. I want you to know that uh, this is, these are models and the reality was different. They interacted in various ways. They borrowed from one another and uh, enriched one another, but also were out to do different things. If you want to know a little bit more about what I think about these, uh, how I would describe these things, uh, you might want to check a uh, fascicle in the series uh, studies in the history, studies in Jesuit spirituality in the spring uh, 2015 number. Uh, so uh, I just offered that as a little added uh, attraction, a little commercial. So let's take a look at these institutions. How did they differ? They differed in the sources they used. They differed in the values they wanted to communicate. And they differed in the product they wanted to produce. That is to say, they differed in how we might construct the, the ideal graduate of a university and the ideal graduate of a college. So let's begin with the university, with that tradition. As I said, like all of these, it goes back to classical antiquity and, uh, but it selects the sources that's going to dominate from that antiquity. So Aristotle, especially his works of uh, what we call natural philosophy, that is on the heavens, on physics, on animals. Today, the seabed really of modern science, Euclid, Galen for medicine, um, the, uh, uh, who else did I want to mention there? Oh, Ptolemy. So it's that tradition. Uh, these, this, this aspect of the classical tradition was important from fourth and fifth century Athens, but more or less on the side, it did not dominate. 
the educational scene. Uh, but in the 13th century, for a number of reasons, these traditions came together and uh, formed what we know and what was known at the time as the university. Uh, you know the very general background of this, the, the translation into Latin of those works that I mentioned, uh, the uh, new uh, stability in European society, the growth of the cities. And uh, so all at once, very end of the 12th and the beginning of the 13th century, a university appeared in Paris and another in Bologna. They were different in their emphasis, but they were operated in very much the same way and they became models that spread throughout Europe. So by the 16th century, there were something like 85 different universities. Some of these were extremely small institutions, but nonetheless, they were universities. They educated only a, a minuscule percentage of the population, but nonetheless were considered important institutions, had a big influence, and were the glory, really, of the cities in which they were located. So what is to be said about them? The first thing that strikes me is how little universities today differ from those 13th century models in their basic procedures and in their basic values. It's amazing. So these universities in the 13th century, a full university had four faculties, law, medicine, arts, which soon became philosophy in the broadest sense of the term, and theology. Not taught in the universities was history or literature. So, they, as I say, they, they all at once, they had an extremely sophisticated uh, institution with deans, different four different schools, faculty meetings, special gowns, examinations, public disputations, uh, public lectures. Uh, so that way they're very similar to uh, identical with universities today. The uh, way they operated was uh, very similar to, I mean, what, what I want to say is, kind of lost my train of thought there. The, uh, the universities had, what were the values of the university? Uh, well, if we look at it, look at them very objectively, they never told us what their values were. They had no uh, treatises discussing the purpose and the dynamism of a university. But there are two values that was at, the, at their core and is at the core of universities today. The first was the value of intellectual problem solving, or as we might say today, the creation of knowledge. 
The second value was career advancement through the acquisition of technical skills. So no matter what you might think, students went to a medieval university so that they might get a better job. Uh, those were the two values. So what was the ideal grant, what the ideal graduate looked like? What was, what was the product of this system? I would say it was a certified, publicly certified specialist, a publicly certified technical, someone with technical skills. So this is, these are very important values. I say they're the same values as, as, our, as our universities today. Um, were they Catholic? Well, they were in a Catholic environment through, through and through. They, uh, some had a papal charter. Well, the papal charter didn't really mean too much in terms of the actual operation of the university. It was a patron. They all needed a patron, and a distant patron was better than a local patron because it left the university free. Um, the theology faculty, which was the predominant faculty in Paris, but certainly not in Bologna, where predominant faculty was law in Paris. So the goal was faith seeking understanding. So it was consonant with some of the, with the goals of, of the church. So in that sense, there, there, were, there, there was kind of Catholic, but in terms of their core values and product, I would say they were secular. Intellectual problem solving, career advancement. Yeah, pretty secular in my point of view. Uh, so what's the alternative? The alternative is the humanistic tradition, the college to give it a, a, the institution a name. And that institution came into being, crystallized and so forth, in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, as I said. It too uh, derives ultimately from classical antiquity, but it's a different corpus, different sources. Homer, Thucydides, Aeschylus, Demosthenes, Cicero, Quintilian, Ovid. So literary sources. Then it also had a theory and talked about a theory of education, which had its origin with the Greek Isocrates, but then was picked up by uh, uh, Cicero and others in the Roman tradition. And in that way was came to dominate Western education down into the 20th century. So this was the basically the dominant institute, the, the basic tradition that in the, in the patristic era, for instance, all the fathers of the church were trained in this tradition. They were trained in grammar, rhetoric, literature. Uh, and 
they went they went to real schools when they were boys so these were humanistic schools but then they they got a new formulation in the 16th century a clearer formulation so what were the values of this type of schooling well it becomes clear when we look at the 15th and 16th century when these schools when the college actually crystallized got organized and came on the scene where the university was very much in evidence and the humanists beginning a matter of fact as far back as petrarch kind of the father of humanism that poet and literateur in the late uh, uh, 14th century uh, saw that the universities were not only were doing the wrong thing, they were not really education because they didn't give a darn about the ethical, physical, intellectual, religious uh, training of the of the student. So this is basically a very student-centered uh, education, not a uh, objective type of education, but a, a very personalized type of education. So it wanted to produce a certain kind of individual. That was the product. So what were some of the qualities of this individual? Well, literature was this topic, right? The basic field. So. Uh, in studying literature, this would basically be classical literature, one was immersed into life as it really is lived and had to face the problems of greed and virtue, self-sacrifice, uh, betrayal, all those issues that uh, are what human life is all about. And you, you got some sense that uh, you had to live in this kind of a world. And then it also, the other side of it, besides literature, of course, it was, also, was history, which was also a part of literature, but kind of a distinct focus. So uh, Thucydides and Livy and people like this, uh, you learned that uh, uh, you had to kind of compromise and uh, uh, make allowances for other people and that you had to sort of make your way on probabilities. Uh, what's the better course of action? What's the safer way to proceed now? What proceed, What way will pursue the common good? So that's one aspect of, of the literary aspect and the historical aspect. Uh, and the basic, so in terms of theory, the theory was you wanted to make this education produce a socially active, sensitive human being, not somebody who was buried in uh, a university for most of his adult life, but someone who was out there in the give and take of real life. So what were the virtues that were required? Well, certain amount of self-sacrifice. So Cicero says it so well in the Neophikius, 
non nobis solum nati sumus. We are not born for ourselves alone. So this was an ideal that ran through it back in, in, in ancient Greece. Uh, Isocrates, uh, the, uh, for the good of the state. So the, the thing I, when I was there in Cambridge at uh, St. Peter's little grammar school there in Cambridge, on the outside is the slogan, for God and country, that pretty well crystallizes what this uh, education was all about. So that brings us to uh, really the 20th century. Uh, again, I want to insist and emphasize that uh, up until the late 19th and especially the early 20th century, the uh, dominant institution was the Schumann's institution. Uh, we, uh, this was true in grammar schools and then up into colleges in the United States, down speaking. So what's peculiar about the United States? I think that the, the contrast with Europe is stark. So in Europe, universities were universities uh, and they did what they did and that continued to do what they're doing. The European universities do not have a officially sponsored soccer team, for instance, which is part of the product of the humanistic education of training the whole person, including you know, sound mind in sound body. Uh, they were not bothered by these humanistic ideals. It's beyond their Maybe that would be done in a liceo, but not in a university. This is not so simple in the United States because virtually all the institutions that were early founded, that we now call, call universities, were founded as colleges. Harvard College, Princeton Seminary, Georgetown University, Georgetown College, and they were basically the product of the humanistic education because that education was complete in itself. Uh, it was for those good goals and it uh, uh, was not, uh, it was complete in and of itself. You did not go to a college and then go on to the university unless you want to be a doctor or a lawyer. But otherwise, by the age of 18 or 19, you were finished, you were done. And that was, it was an alternative to the university. But what happened in the century was uh, the realization on the part of some ambitious Americans who traveled in Europe and studied in European universities, that there was nothing quite like them in the United States. That the United States did not produce, was not, these colleges were not necessarily interested in uh, intellectual problem solving. They were interested in passing on a tradition. Uh, they were not interested in producing a, people getting a good job because you had enough money to go to the university uh, to, if you had enough money to go to a college, there was no need for you to go to a university. So 
Uh, but now this ideal begins to infiltrate into the American system. And this means that eventually the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences gets placed on top of the college. And that affects the college because now the college is sort of a, becomes a secondary school for the university for a, really a higher tertiary level of education. So you go to graduate school after you finish college. Uh, that's a big shift. And in this shift, the humanistic tradition begins to get gradually sidelined because of the uh, values of the university that begin to per permeate it. Then in the early 20th century, because partly as a result of this, you had this new uh, program of education where the colleges, many of the colleges split off uh, from, uh, they, let us say, a part of them split to found a, a college or university. So, I, for instance, uh, uh, the um, in Chicago itself, uh, St. Ignatius College broke up into St. Ignatius High School, where St. Ignatius College Prep is called today, and then Loyola University, and then out of that came uh, the uh, um, other high school. <laughs> they might sit me at the moment. But uh, any rate, so that's the split we have. So what about where is, where are the humanities today? Well, they still play a basic role in primary education, although not so clearly as before. Um, the When I went to high school in this very small town in which I grew up, and this was true across the board, we began every day as a public school, every day with the Pledge of Allegiance, so for God, so for country, and then with the Our Father for for God, uh, that's gone today. So there's kind of trickle down effect of the university ideals has hit the even secondary education. And then in the colleges, Georgetown College, Harvard College and so forth, as I say, this uh, change has taken place. So today, the humanistic education is very much on the defensive. Uh, it's changed throughout the centuries. Uh, in the 17th and 18th century, the great battle between the ancients and the moderns, that is to say, is it going to be based on classical Latin and Greek, or is it going to be based on uh, wonderful contemporary authors like Shakespeare and Dante and people like this. So that battle was won by the, well, well both of them per, uh, persisted, but was basically run by the moderns. Uh, so that's one of the big changes. But uh, the, nonetheless, 
despite the changes, it today is marginalized. Um, what uh, what can we say? Well, I think the first thing that needs to be done is to mount a good argument for the humanistic education. And I have a way of, my way of doing so is to speak of five hooks that the humanistic tradition, the humanistic tradition of education wants to accomplish. Uh, these are updated, these are my own distillation of the tradition, but I like to think that they, that they make sense. And to help the humanistic tradition survive, we need to have good arguments and say what, it, what, it's, what it's about, what it wants to accomplish. And I would say for humanistic education, the first of these five points is the fly in the bottle. That is using uh, Wittgenstein's famous metaphor. So one of the purposes of humanistic education is to get people out of the bottle, get students out of the bottle. That is to say, to get them out of their parochialism, out of their family values, out of their prejudices they have picked up along the way, to show them that there are other ways of looking at things. I mean, some of their, of course, their basic values are, are good, but to make them face a larger world and to uh, thus to expand their horizons and to teach them to ask questions not simply about the specialty or, the, or their comfort zone, but in other areas as well. Ask questions about life itself. And that's the goal of the, that's what literature is supposed to do. The second hook that I like, and it's closely related to the first, is what I call perspective and heritage. That is to say, uh, students need to learn that uh, the uh, assault on the Capitol in January the 6th did not happen out of the blue. There's a history to it. There's something behind it. The same way with everything in our lives. They need to learn that we're products of the past. So some sense of history, uh, some sense of how we got to be where we are is one thing the humanistic tradition wants to accomplish. And heritage, that is to say, uh, looking with satisfaction upon the accomplishments of the past and seeing how they are operative in the present, of course, being critical of them at the same time, but again, to have a sense of values of the past tradition, what's good in it, and try to cherish that and keep it. The second hook is what I would call the, uh, call the uh, self-transcendent or the socially aware. We're not born for ourselves alone. This goes back all the way to Isocrates and then Cicero and all the way through the education. And in the 16th century, 
Erasmus, the great theoretician of um, humanistic education, that uh, we want to produce a certain kind of individual who is socially aware and out in the world, able to take a responsible and role, role in society. The fourth hook is uh, integrity. Uh, that is to say, a person who is not simply socially aware, but also not socially involved, but also uh, has a sense of what's right and wrong. And that again comes through the study of literature, through the study of moral philosophy, uh, through all those other means. So a certain kind of socially aware. I love the uh, part from a section in Bertolucci's great movie, The Last Emperor, which is the story of Puyi, the last emperor of China who lost his throne and ended up in communist prison in the early 20th century. And the court officials wanted the young emperor to um, have some idea of Western education. So they brought this English tutor to him. Uh, and uh, he, uh, uh, Mr. Johnston, who said to the emperor, well, your highness, a gentleman is a person who says what he means and means what he says. So this points to the fifth hook, articulate. So you have a sense of words. You've read and talked and spoken in a correct and persuasive and, artic and uh, uh, coherent way. At the same time, you are an ethical person so that people can believe what you say. Uh, you're upright, an upright citizen. So a gentleman, your highness, is a person who says what he means, not unless you know what I mean stuff, says what he means and means what he says. So finally, I would say a sense of finesse, that is to say, a sense of being able to put two and two together and not always come out with four, uh, that you uh, uh, learn to adjust. You have, you have a sense of ingenuity, and that again comes from uh, seeing all these different cultures and things working together. So that's where I see us today. Why did the Catholics uh, sort of become so enamored of this tradition? Because from the 15th, 16th century onwards, a number of Catholic uh, religious orders founded schools and they were schools in this tradition. The Jesuits were the first, they led the way and they were clear about this. Juan de Polanco, St. Ignatius' great secretary, said, why are we in this business at all? So he gives 15 reasons. The last reason is the best because these men who are boys, who are now only students, will grow up to be administrators of justice and fill other important uh, uh, posts for the good of society. So that's what it's all about. That's why Catholics liked it so much. So I hope that gives you some idea of what I mean by this tradition and 
why I think it's important, why I love it so much. And again, I say, I've drawn two very stark contrasts. Reality is not that simple. So now I think maybe uh, we're open for some questions. Is that right, Deacon Tim? That is right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Father O'Malley, both uh, for the presentation. And um, so we look forward, we've, we've got a number of questions that have come in and let's go back uh, to the first one really to the beginning. You've made the distinction, I think quite clearly between the university and the college. Um, in the university, in the arts faculty in the middle ages, um, in the, in the, within the trivium, uh, did you not have a kind of a humanistic study that was part of it? Well, yes, you had, so the trivium that uh, rhetoric, logic, and dialectic, right? So these are right out of the classical tradition, especially out of Aristotle. Uh, but they weren't pursued in a, uh, in a way that they would, uh, would sort of put them into a whole program uh, of uh, what we would today consider humanistic education. So the, in the Paris, which is on the other universities as well, it was logic and dialectic that got the, got the uh, emphasis, not rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion, right? So those were the ones that got the, got the emphasis. What happened was, so also the quadrivium, they taught the quadrivium, but it was taught in a very sort of abstract and sort of mathematical way. Uh, music was taught as almost a branch of mathematics. There was no performance uh, and there was no real literature. So grammar, rhetoric, and logic. So rhetoric, form of literature as well. So is that clear? So, the, what, so what happens in the university is by the mid, mid by much into the uh, 1230s or so, that faculty begins to devolve into basically a uh, faculty of philosophy. And that then breaks up into two kinds. The, sort of the theoretical kind of uh, epistemology and uh, 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 metaphysics, which were dominating Paris. And then in Italy, it was uh, the uh, uh, natural philosophy that dominated. Uh, and was that's why we had Galileo comes out of Padua in those universities. So, does that help? That does, yep. Um... You said that the university, if you look at its values, um, is really secular. Mm -hmm. You didn't say anything about uh, the college, about humanistic studies, in, uh, in whether it was, in a sense, um, not secular, or uh, whether it could have a specifically um, uh, religious or Christian coloring to it. Um, can you comment a little bit on, on that as you make that distinction? I'm sorry, I didn't make it clearly because that's a big point of what I want to talk about. So this, this, uh, this tradition begins in a pagan world, right? So reverence for the gods, right? But it was certainly not a Christian world. But, but by the time you get to the, uh, the fathers of the church, uh, it begins to be kind of Christianized because they, that's the training they had. That's what they came out of it. Well, Augustine himself had been a teacher of rhetoric. Uh, and then 
dabbled in Neoplatonism and then became a Christian and then were off and running. Uh, so, but what happens in the 16th century, the humanists, despite what you hear about the pagan humanists, the, the humanists were Catholics. And they were thinking when, of this as a, when they talked about training a uh, ethical person, they would think of this in terms of a, a Christian ethics. And then with Erasmus, all the more so, uh, becomes a great a theoretician of it. So, and then what happens with the Jesuits? Uh, the Jesuits bought the humanistic program and ideals hook, line, and sinker. But again, they were religious orders. So what they meant was, yeah, this was training you as to be a good Catholic, or to be a good Christian. So then the other religious orders begin to follow that model. And that's what we had up until you know, relatively recently. Is that clear to you? Yep, that, that is clear. Are there, um, are there points of tension between the church or churches and humanistic education at some times in the past? They seem to, in your account, they, they seem to be um, quite symbiotic, but are there points of, of tension as well sometimes? Not really. <laughs> the point of tension was not with the humanistic, it was with the universities. It was the university. These people asked all kinds of questions. Nobody knew where they were going to go. So uh, if you look at the, the people who are condemned as heretics from the 13th century on into the 16th, these were all university people, mm -hmm. uh, culminating in Luther himself. So Occam and uh, people at Paris and uh, uh, so the others, so not all, not, not exclusively, but by and large, it was it. So, so no, so the, in Rome, for instance, in the Renaissance, uh, the humanists were prized. They were, they were supported and uh, helped by bishops and by the popes. And so they were, they were, they were the hottest thing on the block. Um. Interesting question about Newman's idea of a university has come in. Um, obviously, there's, there's an important place for uh, theology study in his idea of a university. Um, it also perhaps doesn't fit exactly into the university model that you have uh, defined classically. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I can. Um, it's a masterpiece, of course, uh, and to be studied, but it is not really a good picture of a university. It's a good picture of Oxford and then of Cambridge in the mid-19th century. And these were idiosyncratic universities at the time. They did not match anything really going on the continent. And so there, I think today that the Newman's idea of a university is a really kind of a misleading book. If you're, I mean, you can get some inspiration from it, you get some ideas from it, but uh, universities never looked like the picture he draws, except in Cambridge and Oxford. Uh, 
So uh, it's a great book. I recommend it, but I recommend it with much caution. <laughs> okay. Um, we have a good question from a Georgetown student. Um, oh, I'm really on my guard. <laughs> uh, Kevin Sullivan, who asks, there is a large movement promoting civic education today, like the democracy prep charter school system. What can humanistic schools offer that's deeper or more powerful than simple democratic education? Well, democratic education, I mean, it has to have some roots. And it has to, uh, I mean, I don't know, I don't know those schools at all, so I can't really say, but they, they need to have some roots. You just can't say, you know, uh, democracy is good. Uh, let's have more of it. Uh, and here's how you do it. Uh, you need to have some sense of values and uh, a program that is integral. And again, uh, I think if you're training for democracy, you want to produce, a, you want a certain kind of individual in the democratic process. We have democracy supposedly in the United States today. And not all the people who are engaged in democratic, I mean, I mean, in the generic sense, the democratic uh, life are really admirable people. So that's part of human life. Of course, you're never going to get rid of that. But if you're having a program, you need to have some ideal of the person that you want in this society. And that's what, you know, it's humanistic education. This is a, I mean, Formal, formal schooling can just do so much. Uh, your family and so on. These are where the basic, your basic character is formed. But just because they, they we can only deal with, <laughs> only deal with the product. Universities can only, colleges can only deal with the product they get, right? And sometimes they, they what they're trying to do takes and sometimes it doesn't take. But at any rate, you need to have the ideal. You need to know what you're striving um, you have a real distinction between uh, the model of the university and the model of the college with its humanistic study. Uh, is there, have there been ways of um, combining those? Yes, there have. And again, uh, I'm, of course, I'm a Jesuit, so you've got to accuse me of being too partisan, but the Jesuits did this. So they had by the time they were suppressed in the 17th century, 18th century, they had about 600 schools. Vast, vast majority of these were colleges, but they did have some universities. But here was a distinction. The Jesuit universities always began with a humanistic program, with, a, with an arts college. Uh, so uh, with those, those ideals, and then on top of that would come philosophy, and theology, or um, in, in some cases, even law, and in a very few cases, medicine, usually staffed by, not staffed by Jesuits. So they, the Jesuits themselves, after all, the early Jesuits were trained at the University of Paris, so they esteemed university education. Then they moved to Italy, which is where this movement really crystallized and began, and they became very impressed with what they were trying to do. And so the Jesuit schools from the very beginning, they were on the humanistic model. But as I say, they still wanted university education. So they 
they put the two together. So, but the thing was that the base was the humanistic program. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you had the professional programs. So, so, so there really is that kind of combination in that, uh, in that type of Jesuit institution. Absolutely, yeah. So at least theoretically, there was, there was certainly that type of thing. And they were, they didn't, uh, they influenced one another, of course, but they were distinct programs. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, we have a question which is related to this, maybe going more into the tradition of Jesuit education. Um, just more generally, beginning with the Jesuit Ratio Studiorum in the 16th century, and as this as Jesuit education develops in the um, through the, the 19th and 20th and even 21st centuries, what kind of particularly Jesuit um, uh, contributions have been made to um, uh, humanistic study or humanistic education? I guess I should yeah. say. Uh, good question, but let me begin by talking about the Ratio Studiorum. That, again, is a very misleading document. Uh, you read it, it begins with the first thing it talks about is theology. Then it talks about a philosophy. Then it moves finally down the ladder to the lower disciplines of rhetoric, grammar, literature, history, and, and so forth. The actual fact is that uh, that program of theology philosophy was implemented in very few Jesuit institutions because there were very few, very relatively very few universities. So it's not really a good model to look at for the history of Jesuit education. Uh, you need to, unless you just kind of concentrate on the so-called lower disciplines, which is the disciplines where they specialize. So um, Jesuits were, of course, good, good philosophers, good theologians. But what was very peculiar about the Jesuits themselves was their expertise in secular fields. And they were expertise in secular fields because they were teaching secular students. And secular students didn't want to learn so much about philosophy and theology, except that they did want to learn about uh, uh, politics. They wanted to learn about uh, animals, they want to learn about uh, the physical world, want to learn about astronomy and all these kinds of things, navigation. So these are the subjects that the Jesuits were really teaching. So uh, so what were the, were the Jesuit contributions? Well, for one thing, the very beginning, uh, the humanistic, first humanistic schools were basically, as they developed, basically one teacher, one room, uh, affairs. So you, a boy went to a school and when ages six or seven, maybe he had a little knowledge of Latin and thrown into what we would call a seminar on Virgil. Because the other boys, the older boys have been through this well, sink or swim. I mean, you know, so eventually uh, he would catch on, but take him a long time to catch up with what was going on. So one thing the Jesuits did, uh, they learned this at Paris. They uh, divided the class, they had classes. They, you started with very basic rudimentary uh, knowledge and then you moved up to uh, another level and you moved up to another level and so forth. So this meant 
multiple faculty, not just one teacher. You had to have several teachers at least. You had to have different classrooms. So the Jesuits are among the first for the colleges to have these elaborate uh, establishments with multiple classrooms, chapel, theater, uh, laboratories, all these things. So that was a big contribution. Then I think that today, if we move right to the present, uh, the, uh, uh, this has been happened since the middle of the last century, the uh, emphasis in our education on uh, men and women for others, clear enunciation of that, and uh, faith doing justice, as I say, trying to bring students who uh, are socially aware and aware of their responsibilities. Now, I can only speak of Georgetown by immediate experience, but this is preached in and out at Georgetown. Uh, Georgetown is a university. It's about the university, what the universities do for you. But the message is, that's not everything. That's not the best thing. The important thing is, what about you? What are, what are you gonna do with yourself now? What, how do you look at life? Uh, and don't you see how we need one another and try to do your part in helping one another? Um, the, um, the college or humanistic study has been very tied to a kind of a great books study tradition. Um, how adaptable is it outside and beyond that? Um, already we went through the, the, the uh, quarrel of the ancients and moderns, the curriculums have changed somewhat, but how, how adaptable is it? Well, I think it's pretty adaptable. So one thing I meant to say, and I forgot to say it with kind of the punchline here is, uh, so as the subject matter of the humanistic education has changed, moved to uh, 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 vernacular literature and other studies, other, other things get put under the humanities, such as even philosophy and even theology, which were basically you know, professional disciplines. Um, the, uh, so the whole corpus is broadened, but also I'm convinced what's important is not the subjects themselves, it's how they are taught. If you teach literature as a preparation for graduate school, I don't consider that humanistic in and of itself. Uh, but if you're teaching literature for these humanistic goals, that's quite different. So you need to know what you're doing. You need to have an ultimate goal in mind. I must say, when I was teaching with Georgetown and so forth, I wanted the students to, to learn history, to learn it well, to have a, a professional, but a, certainly a, a keen knowledge of it. But um, I also was interested in them as, as students and wanted them to go beyond that. So I guess one of my points is that these values, these five hooks that I have, this can be taught in one way or another to greater or lesser extent in almost any discipline. It's how you teach them. What, are, what is your ultimate goal? What am I doing here with these students? So uh, I can see that working out. 
Okay. Let's make this one um, final question. It's actually, I'm gonna bring uh, two together. Um, one person asks about uh, the cost of education and what this really, um, the, the problem, the challenge that this presents uh, for a human uh, humanistic uh, education. Um, and a similar uh, kind of related question, thinking of Catholic colleges and universities, they've tended to put more emphasis in recent years on the STEM curricula um, instead of investing in the humanities. Um, is, is there some move towards making uh, humanistic education more explicitly part of Catholic universities or are they kind of going the way of everybody else? I think they're going away of everybody else. I mean, it's a real struggle to keep them going. And that's why I think it's so important to kind of marshal the arguments in favor of it. And that's what I've, what I've been trying to say. And what was the first part of the question? About cost, generally about the, oh, the as a challenge. Uh, this, of course, is an American problem, right? Yeah. This is an American problem uh, because we don't have any state-sponsored, uh, you know, educational system, it's the Canadians do, I mean, they, and they, they cater and they, they make provision for religious, religious uh, schools with religious colleges and universities with a religious background and so forth. So, yeah, but this is an American problem. That's a big problem, not just for humanistic education, but for all facets of education. And I mean, universities try, they offer all, all kinds of scholarship. I mean, millions and millions and millions of the budget goes into student help and so forth. But yeah, I, I have no solution to that, but I wouldn't restrict it just to humanistic education. Well, it is, does hit humanistic education in this sense. You, know, you go, to, go to college, you go to university to get a better job. And it's costing you a lot and you don't want to waste money on trivia like, like the humanities. <laughs> so that's why you have to have a good argument for the humanities, not just say it's a requirement of it requirement of the school, uh, we got to show them what the, what the value of it is, which is what I've been trying to talk about. Good. Well, it, thank you so much. Um, thank you for the five hooks. Um, thank you for the perspectives and the lively Q&A. So um, thank you for everything. And I want also to, uh, thanks to our audience, remember too that you can Help us in the ongoing mission of the Harvard Catholic Forum by supporting us financially through our website. Please join us for the next Harvard Catholic Forum event on Thursday, February 18th at 7.30 Eastern time, when we will have the distinguished scripture scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, addressing miracles, source of truth, or violation of natural law. Details and registration are on the Harvard Catholic Forum website. And finally, exactly one week from today on Febu at February 13th at 10 a.m. Central, uh, 11 Eastern, join Patrick Geary from Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study for Pledges of the Saints, the Cult of Relics in the Catholic Tradition. Registration and details for this are on the Lumen Christi website. Thank you again for joining in this conversation and have a good evening.